Welcome to Abide in Liberty, a podcast empowering patriots everywhere to re-enthrone faith, family, and freedom as the bedrock pillars of liberty in education, our communities, and our nation. All right. Welcome back, patriots, for another episode of Abide in Liberty. As a brief reminder, we're working our way through some of the principles that Cleon Skousen outlined in his book, The 5,000-Year Leap. And these are principles that the founding fathers almost universally agreed with and that they all had in their minds and talked about in their framing of the Constitution during their break from England when they issued the Declaration of Independence. This, this, these principles permeate the founding of our country from start to finish. So we're going through those. There's a couple of important figures here to note. We're pulling a lot from a guy named Sir William Blackstone, who was a an English political philosopher who wrote a treatise called Commentaries of the Law of England that boiled down English common law into legal principles that could be understandable and accessible to the layperson, to the common everyday person. Um, another is a, an English political philosopher from the 1600s who wrote some essays on political philosophy, a guy named John Locke. And so you'll find a lot of the principles that are enshrined in the Constitution are articulated by these two people. You'll also hear wording from the Declaration of Independence that are pulled directly from some of uh, Locke's and some of Blackstone's writings and their thoughts. And of course, we've already established this before, but the number one source material for the founders during the Constitutional Convention and during the founding of our nation was the Bible. But Blackstone and John Locke come in as a close second to that. At the end of last week, I left off talking about the principle of the sovereignty, the ultimate authority for running the government resting in the whole of the people. And that's different from years and centuries of thought that said that God picked a king and that was where the sovereignty, that was where the power lied. The founding fathers turned that on its head and that has some really important implications in the founding of our country and in the justification of the Americas from breaking away from Great Britain in the first place. So if you missed last week, you definitely want to go back and listen to that episode before moving on to this one. All right, so this the next principle that we're going to talk about here is the principle that the majority of the people can alter or abolish a government that has become tyrannical. So from John Locke, and before I before I give this quote from John, let me just kind of remind you of from a couple episodes ago, we talked about this thought experiment. And actually, John Locke does and goes through this experiment in some of his writing, but this thought experiment of imagining you being in a state of nature. So before there were hundreds and thousands of people, you start off with a few families, you're kind of doing your own thing, but as society advances and grows and becomes more numerous, you tend to bring in some unsavory characters. They just kind of appear. And so now you've got people, bad actors, who you have to protect your land from. Now you can't be watching your borders all the time to make sure that someone's not running off with your sheep or running off with your wheat or your crops. So you have a choice. Do I guard my property and that's my sole focus? Or do I raise my animals and raise my food to feed my family? So the idea is that in the beginning, people came together. And you can kind of imagine this. If you go back to the days of Adam and his children, at some point they come together and say, hey, we can't 
all be watching our property. Let's, you know, you've got a farm over here, but would you mind, you're kind of a big burly guy. Would you mind being kind of our police? You walk around and make sure all of our property's safe so that we can focus on growing food and we'll give you a little bit of that food for you and your family to support you. This is kind of where you'd come up with the idea of taxes, right? So we're gonna each pitch in a little bit. And so the the sovereign will of the people, the people come together to form this government. And the reason why that government is formed is not because government wants to exist or there's some need for the government itself to have something to do. The purpose of forming that government is to protect your own life, to protect your own property. So government is set up to protect people and their rights. That's the whole purpose. There's no other reason why you would decide to create a government in the first place. So that's the thought experiment that John Locke goes through and others have done. So keep that in mind as we, as I read this next quote. He said, the reason why men enter into society is the preservation of their property. Therefore, when the legislators endeavor to take away and destroy the property of the people or to reduce them to slavery under arbitrary power, they, the officials of government, put themselves into a state of war with the people who are thereupon absolved from any further obedience and are left to the common refuge which God hath provided for all men against force and violence. Whensoever, therefore, the legislative shall transgress this fundamental rule of society and either by fear, ambition, folly, or corruption endeavor to grasp themselves or put into the hands of any other in absolute power over the lives, liberties, and estates of the people— By this breach of trust, they, the government officials, forfeit the power the people had put into their hands, and it devolves to the people who have a right to resume their original liberty and provide for their own safety and security. So going back to this thought experiment, if this person that you have all agreed to delegate the policing power to to keep your land safe, if that person starts being the one that's taking your property or destroying your fences or threatening your life and your safety— that small government that you've set up is abusing the very purpose of why you put them in a position of authority to do that in the first place, well, then it's only natural that that agreement dissolves and the people go back to that original state that they were in and they have the opportunity to come together again and decide, hmm, that didn't really work. So what are we going to do differently? Maybe the structure that we set up, we gave too much power to one person, or maybe it's just the person. We picked the wrong guy for the job. He was a big dude, but had some bad habits that he was, that came to light through all of this. We're going to pick somebody else to do it. So you have, you go back to this state of nature and you get to decide what to do differently next time. And this is exactly, and you can hear this language of John Locke in this paragraph from the Declaration of Independence. It says, when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, It is their right, meaning the people, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for the future security. So Thomas Jefferson is pulling directly from this concept of John Locke, that when this government that we've set up, that we've given some authority becomes abusive, we have the right because we have the ultimate authority to say, we're done, we're going to abolish that government and we're going to do something different now. And that's exactly the justification that the founders used in the Declaration of Independence to break up with Great Britain. 
Now, this leads to an interesting case study. Was the Revolutionary War just? Was it right for them to revolt the way that they did? And this is especially interesting when a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints compares what the Founding Fathers did in revolting against the laws that Great Britain had put in place with the Article of Faith that we all learn and memorize and learn to recite, which says, we believe in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, and magistrates in obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. So by that, by a very strict definition of that Article of Faith, the Founding Fathers were incredibly wicked in breaking from Great Britain, yet we also believe that the Constitution was inspired by God, that the Founding Fathers were protected by God during the Revolutionary War, that he set up this country to be a land of liberty. So how do these things jive? And to understand that, it all comes back to this idea that the sovereign authority rests in the people. Great Britain, operating under the divine right of kings, looked at the revolution as an unlawful act because me, the king, I have authority. They're disobeying, so they're breaking the law. But if the sovereignty really does rest in the people, then the majority of those people can decide on a new direction. And as soon as the majority comes together and collectively decides that this government over here is no longer doing anything for us and we're going to set up a new one, then that act becomes the lawful legal government. So under that definition, if the sovereignty really does rest in the people, when the founding fathers sent their delegates to Philadelphia in 1776 to decide, what do we do? Do we keep trying to make amends or is it time for us to break free? And the delegates from every single state unanimously agreed to to withdraw from Great Britain. At that moment, because the sovereign authority rests with the people, the law of the land, the righteous, correct, law of the land became that new government because the majority in whom the sovereign authority rests decided to do so. In that case, when Great Britain decided to come over and fight and try to compel the early colonies to come back under British rule, that act in and of itself was an unlawful act and worthy of God's protection in driving it off. So, it seems like such a little thing. Does the king have the authority or does the people have the authority? But the the implications of that difference are enormous and make all the difference on whether you're on the right side or the wrong side of history, whether you're deserving of God's help and aid or not. Now, the other side of that coin is the minority cannot revolt and impose its will on the rest, and that can't ever happen. Okay, The next principle that we're going to talk about is that the United States of America was to be a republic. And this is something that every single founder agreed on. We are not a democracy. So let's think of the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic, not the democracy, but to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. This is a huge pet peeve of mine. There, you hear democracy so much. We were watching um, a political debate recently with some friends, and one of the candidates kept saying, and of course, like so many politicians do, let's not talk about what I believe. I'm just going to talk, point to that guy and say, 
he's a threat to our democracy. And I don't know how many times that came up. This person's a threat to our democracy. No, I'm not. You're a threat to the democracy. Stop calling it a democracy. We are not a democracy. And the founders were very careful to make sure we weren't a democracy. James Madison knew, and the founding fathers all knew that there wasn't a single example in human history of a stable, peaceful, long-lasting democracy. James Madison said, democracies have ever been the spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property, and have in general been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. <laughs> that's, that's true. Go try and find a democracy that lasted a long time and was peaceful and was wonderful. The Greeks tried it um, and other societies have tried it, but their ends were swift and they were violent. They did not last long. Now let's think about it. He makes two claims here that in a democracy, there's no personal security. There's no personal safety and there's no protection of property. So let's talk about why that is. Why is there no personal security? Why is there no personal protection? And the reason is if you can get enough people to agree with you, you can have a majority, a mere 51% of the people can come together, pass any law they want, and oppress all the rest. If they want to pass a law that says every single one of that 49% has to leave their homes, give us all their stuff, and come serve us as slaves, then that becomes the law and that has to happen. So you can imagine when people try to oppress those minorities, why these things might end violently. If someone tried that, it's not going to end pretty. And that's a little bit of an extreme example, but it, it illustrates the point. Why don't democracies then protect the right of property? Well, for the same reason, because the majority can come together and to say, we really like your land. We really like your business. You've done a great job building this thing up. Uh, we're going to pass a law that says that all redheads now have to give us their businesses because redheads tend to be really successful for some reason. So guess what? That's all ours. Thank you for the work. Have a nice day. Move on with your life. Democracies are mob rule. It's you get enough people together, you get the majority together, and they can do whatever the heck they want. And that kind of absolute power does corrupt absolutely. And it has every single time so far. Now, there's another problem with democracy that um, were addressed in the Federalist Papers, and James Madison doesn't talk about it here, but they all saw this. It, a democracy was simply impractical for a country the size that America was at the time with 13 colonies spanning all up and down the East Coast. But they were looking to the West and they saw a future where a huge chunk of that westward land would become a part of the United States. And in a democracy, the way that you pass laws is every single citizen comes together and votes. So if you want to pass a, a an ordinance at your town that um, limits the paint color that you can put on your house. Every single person in the town has to show up. Um, and this isn't just for local things. This goes all the way up to the federal level. So every single law from federal to state to county to local, you need to research, you need to understand all of its ins and outs, and then you need to go and actually vote and do that yourself. And I don't know about you, we're in the middle of an election cycle right now, and it's about all I can do to research the handful of candidates I got to decide on. If I had to spend my time researching every single law that is passed, every ordinance, the millions of pages that have been passed as law in this country, a, a normal person, we don't, simply don't have time to do that at the federal, state, 
county and local levels, we, we can't, it's not, it's simply not practical. It's not possible. Um, you might get people just voting and they'd have no idea what they're voting for. So you get bad laws that haven't been really thoroughly thought through. Not to mention the fact that it's just really hard to tally up every time there's a federal vote on um, whatever the case is, to tally up to 300 million votes every single time um, just doesn't work. Now, a republic is what we are, and we're specifically a constitutional republic. So let's start with the republic piece of that first. So the republic piece solves the impracticality problem. So instead of all of us having to understand all the laws and go vote every single time an ordinance or any law of any size needs to be passed, we elect representatives who go and do that for us. So they can have their full-time job being, hopefully, they're reading the laws before they pass them so that we can focus on our lives, on um, on growing food, on building things, on engineering, medicine, science, whatever the case is. So that solves the impracticality. We get to send delegates. They get to go do that work for us. And every so often through elections, we get to decide if we like what they're doing or we can fire them if we don't and hire somebody else. But a republic itself doesn't necessarily, it's a, it's a method of representation and of voting, but a republic all by itself doesn't necessarily solve the problems of oppression and the problems of persecuting or, um, you know, hurting somebody or taking their stuff. Because you can still, hypothetically, it's a little bit harder because it's a layer removed. So ideally, you have representatives that can kind of resist some of the um, more base impulses of people to just take from other people. That layer of separation does help with that somewhat. But hypothetically, you still could have the majority of those representatives, if they're listening to the voice of the people, come and decide to oppress a minority. And this is where a constitutional republic has been such a game changer and was a novelty. Before this time, there wasn't a written constitution that we know of in the history of the world. And what made that so important was the last, at the very end of the constitution, there's an acknowledgement that everybody, every state and every person that lives under this constitution acknowledges that the constitution is the supreme law of the land. It has the final say. So even if 70% of the people decide that they want to go take something from someone else, if the Constitution doesn't allow it, it doesn't matter if 70% of the people want it. Constitution says no, the Constitution stops it. Now, if you can get 75% of all the states to agree to something, you can amend the Constitution, but that's a much higher bar to, to, to vault than a simple majority of 50.1% of the people. So it makes it a lot harder to go make those changes that could be oppressive. And the size of the United States, the fact that you have areas that are heavy on agriculture and others that are heavily reliant on industry and on manufacturing, and you've got other areas that are very heavily reliant on technology innovation means you've got all these competing interests across a large continent. It's really hard to conceive of a scenario where you could get 75% of the people, when all of these competing interests across such a large continent are at play, where you get 75% that would be willing to come in and agree to oppress one group, because chances are one of those oppressed groups is a large percentage in and of itself. So um, it was a really, really brilliant way of handling it. But the Constitution being there as a backstop to protect against those abuses, in addition to the layer of separation between the people and the laws that are being enacted. Um, 
have gone a long way to solve the problems of a democracy. So anytime you hear, I hope from now on, anytime you hear someone say, we got to protect our democracy, you think like I do that, thank goodness we don't have a democracy. We are a constitutional republic, and that's the only reason that we are still here after almost 300 years. Okay, now there's, as I'm going through this, some of you are probably thinking there's a blaring problem here that the Constitution has not protected all minorities from its inception. Uh, Slavery was a big, big topic during the Constitutional Convention, and I want to do a separate episode on just that at some point because it deserves its own it deserves its own podcast. I mean, you could you write books about this, but basically in the Constitutional Convention, um, the, the northern states wanted to abolish it completely once and for all. The southern states did not. They wanted their representation in the House of Representatives to be calculated based on the number of free and enslaved people. And so enslaved people would count as a, a whole person. Now, a lot of people look at this and say, oh my gosh, the founding fathers said that a slave is worth three-fifths of the person. No, that's not what it means. The three-fifths compromise was the North wanted to weaken the South and not allow any representation based on the number of slaves. It was only on free free people. And the slave and the slave states wanted their representatives and the number of representatives they got for their state to be calculated based on the total number of free and enslaved people. So this was a compromise that was kind of look, our country's gonna fall apart. We don't, no one was really happy with it. But they agreed that for purposes of representation, they would count enslaved peoples as three-fifths of the person. So the slaves didn't the slave states didn't get everything they wanted, but it did weaken their position in Congress considerably. Um, now, so the Constitution, though, kind of enshrined um, that this oppression of slavery would continue. And that that is truly unfortunate. And thank goodness that we have since fixed that through um, subsequent amendments. Slavery has been abolished, rights equal rights um, to all people have been guaranteed under the Constitution, and we're still working on making sure that we achieve that as best as we can. And where we are today, and where most of the founders wanted to get to, including slaveholders like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, they wanted to get there a lot sooner than we did, but to the point where even if today the majority decided they wanted to take all property away from people with freckles, the Constitution prevents that from happening because that's there to protect those some of those more um, not okay inclinations of people to want to take from those who have and give it to themselves. So this leads then, while we're on the topic of slavery, then let's then look at the case of the Civil War. We have here a situation where when uh, President Lincoln was elected, before he had even taken the oath of office, the slave states, many of them, not all of them, but many of them looked at who Abraham Lincoln was. He had given many speeches on the importance of abolishing slavery and on the evil of slavery. So their assumption was, this guy's elected, he's president, he's going to want to get rid of slavery. And we can't have that. Our entire economic system is dependent on the on slavery doing our, our work for us and helping us produce what we've got to produce. Um, so the these states seceded from the nation. They rebelled. They decided, hey, they kind of did what the founders did during the Revolutionary War, they said, look, we don't like what's going on, so we're going to pull back. We're going to set up our own country. And they did. They elected their own president and and all these things. Well, President Lincoln decided at the time, that's not legal. You can't do that. 
Now you might look at that and on its surface, you might think, well, they're doing exactly what the founding fathers did. And it looks like it, but it's not the same thing. So remember, prerequisite number one that John Locke, that John Locke stated for a people overthrowing and setting up a new government is if legislators endeavor to take away and destroy the property of the people or to reduce them to slavery under arbitrary power, the officials of the government put themselves into a state of war with the people. By President Lincoln taking a position that we should get rid of slavery, this was not an attempt to enslave people or to bring people into subjection or to deprive people of property. This was, his belief was, we need to restore the freedom and the property of people who have been oppressed. So right at the beginning, the slave states don't meet that first that first test of, are we rebelling in a righteous way? The second prerequisite is majority rule. The very fact that President Lincoln was elected means that the majority of the United States agreed and wanted President Lincoln and what he represented. So this was a minority, and it was a large minority, but it was still a minority that was withdrawing. So this was not the voice of the majority, and it was not in response to an oppressive government who was enslaving and depriving people of liberty. So although it may look similar, when you when you look at these two wars and you analyze them on the basis of these principles, it becomes very clear why one was espoused and endorsed by God and had heaven's help and the other wasn't. God's help was on the side of the North in bringing the Southern states back into the union and ultimately resulting in the freedom of an entire population of enslaved people. That's all we have time for for today, but make sure and join us next week. We're going to, like I promised you last week, we're going to dive into a little bit more why property is so vital to human happiness and to freedom. It's not obvious on the surface, but once we dig into it, I think you'll begin to see just how important property is. Thank you for listening to Abide in Liberty. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and share this with friends and family. In the meantime, keep up with the show online at abideinliberty.com. Also, if you'd like to help our K-12 bless and educate more families, contact us by visiting libertyyouthacademy.org. Until next time, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, and be strong.